This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. For this episode, we're speaking to Joshua Collins. He's a journalist based in Latin America. And for the last week, he's been in Colombia covering the deadly clashes there. Last weekend, a man was beaten and tasered by the police and he later died in police custody. That set off everybody when the footage of that happening went viral. Uh, He was unarmed, he was pleading for his life. Within 24 hours, the police came out and were firing live rounds on people. Up to 13 people are being killed. And Joshua is going to explain to us why this is happening now and why it's lit such a powder keg there in Colombia. If you like what we're doing, please consider supporting Popular Front at patreon.com slash popular front. Explain to us why these clashes broke out um, so ferociously across uh, across Colombia in this last week. Well, the, the immediate spark was there was a 42-year-old guy who was uh, studying in to be a lawyer. I think he had um, an electrical engineering degree as well named Javier Ordonez. And he was on the street after lockdown. So some police approached him saying that they were going to give him a um, fine for violating the lockdown social distancing measures. And in the beginning, he was kind of like yelling at them. He's like, this is ridiculous. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Uh, But Mm. it escalated quickly and they ended up beating him. So somebody caught it on video, too. Beating him and tasing him while he was basically like pleading for his life and uh, took him back to the station where he was given another beating for like resisting arrest and died in the station. So that kind of went wild on September 9th in social media in Bogota. The next morning, um, so to make this this story a little bit simpler, there's these mini precincts um, in every neighborhood of Bogota, and they're called CAIs. And they're like these little concrete bunkers where they hold people um, after they're arrested, and then trucks come and pick them up and take them to the main precincts if they're going to be charged, right? It's like a kind of holding cell. Yeah, yeah, but there are like hundreds of them all over Bogota. So mm. protesters from this neighborhood in, in Villa de Luz showed up at this CAI, and, and in the morning they were just protesting. By afternoon they were throwing red paint on the station and, and calling the, the police murderers. And all of this was being like, you know, pretty well documented on social media. And then the police kept responding to these protesters with tear gas, with, with attacking them with beatings, and they kept returning. By late afternoon, they were throwing bricks and rocks at the CAI. And as the police continued to escalate the situation, the, uh, especially in the outer rings of Bogota, where the poorer neighborhoods are, like it's not like an American city where the suburbs are nice. The suburbs are, are the, the bad part of the city, right? Or the poor right. part is a much, a much better way to say it. Um, so the outer rings, all the neighborhoods, something like 60 police stations, uh, people started throwing, showing up at these police stations and throwing rocks at the, at the police stations. A little over a dozen of them were burnt down that night. Um, the first night of protest, police responded with uh, live ammunition, killed nine people, and wounded, like, I don't remember the exact number of the first night, it was something like 100-something people, and the hospital was reporting dozens and dozens of gunshot injuries from the police using live fire. And so then that just spiraled. That went on all night, and those protests got worse for about two days. And then things got a little better. Uh, the police stopped murdering people in the streets, I guess. But and by the end of the protests on day four, there were 13 protester deaths and over 200 injuries. Basically, the police just came straight out firing live rounds. Yeah, pretty much. Their defense was they felt that they were being attacked. 
But the the thing that's interesting about that, all this is still under investigation, right? So the, the official statements are a little bit cloudy on the matter. But what people at all of these protests were saying is like the police had the option to just leave. It's not like they're defending these expensive buildings. They're like concrete bunkers with like reinforced glass, right? They're and and instead of just being like, okay, we're out of here, they they chose to escalate the situation. And and like, you know, the people I, I was at some of the protests, a lot of the protests, um, especially the second and third day. And like, yeah, there was there was some violence from protesters. They're throwing rocks, but like they're throwing rocks at guys with like plastic body armor hiding behind like bulletproof glass, right? Like there were um, something like 90 X um, injuries among the police, but it's like still that doesn't justify like indiscriminately firing into the crowd. And one of the one of the I did the story on how these occupied um, precincts were kind of adapted by the community, and at one of them in the Kaiga Gaitan in Suba, like in the north of the city where a lot of the protests were concentrated, it's, they killed, as they were firing into the crowd, they weren't just shooting at protesters, they were just shooting indiscriminately. And they killed a 19-year-old psychology student who, Juliana, Juliana Ramirez, who was just walking home uh, from the store from buying groceries, right? And they also paralyzed um, another 23-year-old single mom in the same neighborhood. So it's like, these weren't, this wasn't, this wasn't like, imminent self-defense of someone shooting at someone who was attacking them. It's them firing indiscriminately into the crowd. And I think that's what really made Bogota so mad and why these protests mushroomed into every major city in Colombia. Right. Uh, there, there were no protesters firing guns at the police, right? Like you said, it was rocks. Yeah. Um, I saw like some Molotovs, but you know, a lot, a lot of people were saying, oh, so much for peaceful protests. Like, firstly, no one said there were peaceful protests. Like, there has to be a point when the people go, right, this is outrageous. Like, they tased a guy, beat him, and he died. Like, you know, obviously everybody's going to go fucking mad. And then the police come out and start firing. I mean, I kind of think, like, what, what do you expect people to do, you know? And you kind of have to understand, too, I think that in, in for people that aren't in Colombia, like, you have to understand the relationship that police have with some of these marginalized communities. So the state here has a huge history of state violence. Um, the human rights group Temblore has documented, I'm looking at my notes, 40,481 instances of physical abuse and 600 homicides perpetuated by the police against civilians between 2017 and 2019. There are mass accusations of corruption, extortion, like these police in some of these, these neighborhoods will be running extortion scams on, on, on businesses, on criminal groups. There's hundreds of accusations of rapes in these guys of when they're holding females. So it's like the people in these communities have had an antagonistic relationship with Colombian police for decades, right? This is not something new. So when people are saying, oh, it was a violent protest, it's like, yeah, it definitely was. But it's like they were responding to violence that had been imposed upon them for decades. I think that's a point that some foreign press is making. It's a really common story here in Colombia. But in English language, I think a lot, that part of the story is often overlooked, right? You you're talking about these youths from this community that have been neglected by the state for decades and they have been extorted by cops on the street, right? Like it happens all the time. Like they'll stop you. It's happened to me. Like I, I got stopped in um, South of Candelaria here in Bogota and they told me they wanted to check my ID and they told me they found marijuana and I was like, you guys didn't find marijuana. And they're like, yeah, we did. It's right here. And they're holding it. And they're like, I was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? You guys, and I was like, whatever, I'm not going to argue with the cops. I'm a foreigner. They're just going to like put me in jail for the weekend, right? So they're like, you know, um, you can tell the judge it's not yours on Monday. It was a Friday night. They're like, and uh, they're like, or you can you know, give us a $50,000 uh, donation to the Policemen's Association. And I was like, okay, fine, whatever. It's like 18 American dollars. But to me as a foreigner, it's like, 
that's fine. But you somebody from the neighborhood that happens to them. It's like you're talking about people who are trying to live on a minimum wage of a little over two hundred fifty dollars a month, right? So that it, these kind of extortion schemes affect them at a much higher rate than they do me as a foreigner. Does, does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? No, no, definitely. And I think as well, often, you know, I mean, I've experienced it myself on my travels, like even rough cops or like, you know, despotic regimes will try and kind of act a little bit nicer to the white foreigner, like, hey, we're not that bad. So the fact the police do that to like some gringo, like think that they, you know, like think what they're doing to the people, like they must be just fucking everybody. Um, and, and you know what? The problem is, I think there's um, there's a weird kind of um, knock-on effect from this so-called populism right now where people either think that a, a, like a violent protest no matter what is justified or they think that violence in any protest is never justified so we're in a very weird place on the world stage right now and unfortunately everybody's looking at it through this western lens um and i, I noticing at the minute it just you know people are either you know, you've got leftists will see someone do something outrageous in a protest and just completely ignore it because, well, it's their side. Or you get right-wingers that are like, oh, well, never ever smash a window because whatever. Like, okay, so you want, you know, it's it's just, the whole thing is, is just terrible right now, the kind of discourse around it. Um, but with, with that being said, um, maybe you can describe the kind of um, context to uh, the rise of these clashes, if you like. Like this, the murder was, or at least the, the killing by the police, was a spark, but there was already a lot of firewood there, if you get what I'm saying, right? There's been a lot of um, anger towards the government in Colombia. Sure. Um, yeah, I want to kind of back up and address that point you just raised a little bit, though. Yeah. One thing yeah, sorry, that was really yeah. interesting really interesting about these protests as opposed to the national strikes that I saw here in November is that there are two things, right? Usually protests here are organized by student groups, unions, and the political opposition, opposition, and they're organized way in advance. This was different. This was like a spontaneous combustion uh, from the lower classes in Bogota, right? The marginalized kind of ignored communities. And the other big difference I saw is that when you see these giant in student marches, a lot of these, these these universities have a history of radicalism, which I think is really enchanting and cool, but there's a dark side to it, too. Like, you see Molotov cocktails and rocks and as the issue you were just raising, right? It's a complex issue that I, I'm not saying violence is justified in that situation. I would say it isn't. But the interesting thing about these riots is that they were extremely targeted. Like, they, there was no looting. There was no destroying of local businesses. It wasn't like a formless rage. It was a very directed tactical approach. People attacked city infrastructure and police buildings. So you saw buses being vandalized. Um, you saw police stations being burnt down or, or, or graffitied or repurposed, which is another story I'd like to get into if we're going to keep talking about the subject. But it was a really interesting response to me because out of, I've seen a lot of protests here in Colombia. And usually it's kind of like when a riot starts, people start breaking windows or whatever. And that's kind of ammunition to make the, the, the movement look bad. But this was, in one sense, more violence than some of the student protests because they're directly attacking police in some instances. But it was extremely, extremely focused. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a really interesting mm -hmm. uh, phenomenon. It's like the people weren't trying to destroy right. their own community. They had a target. Yeah, yeah. And it, it wasn't organized either. It was just sort of everyone just kind of decided this is how it's going to be. It was, it was super interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, getting back to like kind of the, the larger story of, of why things have been building up here. I think there's like three general um, reasons. One is that Colombia is just starting to emerge from an almost six month, very extreme lockdown. And 
the government made almost no efforts to help people get through this crisis. So what you ended up having was the elite living in these, these, these gated communities with armed guards in the nice neighborhoods in all of Colombia, not just Bogota. And all of, all of the barrios were just sort of left to their own devices. By the end of the quarantine in some of these satellite neighborhoods, people were hanging red cloths from their windows to try and attract attention from NGOs that were providing food. That's how bad the economy was. You had uh, like 60% of these people work informally in the streets in these neighborhoods, right? And so they were just without income for six months. Evictions skyrocketed. The, the Colombian government did almost nothing. So there was this really big perception that the elite was like, Okay, well, we're gonna keep factories running, and uh, we've got plenty of food in our gated community. So, good luck, guys. We'll see you. You know, when this is all done. And I think that generated a lot of anger um, in a country where the elite class has always been perceived as an oligarchy that doesn't care about the peasants. So that was a big factor in the civil war that lasted 50 years here, right? Um, I think another one is the history of Colombian state violence, which we kind of got into a minute ago. But I mean, you also have to look at it. During the height of the Civil War, there was a point, for your listeners who might not be familiar, uh, the Civil War was between the federal governments and socialist communist rebels, FARC and ELN. It lasted 50 years, and during that period, um, they had, the Colombian government had a lot of help from U.S. military forces in, in battling this. And during that time, there's a big story here called the false positive scandal. And Colombian military and paramilitary forces... Uh, imposed a bounty on FARC heads. And also, they would send um, casualty reports to the U.S. to be like, look, we're doing a great job. We're, we're killing a ton of, ton of communists. But it turns out, after the war, through investigative um, journalism and through some legal process, that over 10,000 civilians were killed by paramilitary and Colombian military who claimed they were guerrillas because they realized that a dead farmer looks exactly like a dead uh, FARC fighter, right? So, I mean, you're, you're talking about, like, some institutional uh, state violence that is just part of what's going on here. I mean, there's been 54 mass killings this year alone. Uh, a lot of those are from armed groups in the country. Some of them are from the police. Um, there's been over 210 uh, social leaders here, like activists, uh, environmentalists, people who do research on, on the peace process that have been killed this year, murdered. That's not just not killed in an accident or something like murdered. So a lot of people here feel that the government is, is really unconcerned with rising violence throughout the entire country, and they don't seem to be doing much about it. So, I mean, all, all of this was like, as somebody told me in the protests, I have her exact quote, uh, when protesters attacked these guys, they were attacking symbols of a police force that has oppressed them for decades. This is Andrea Blanco. She's the cultural administrator of one of the guys, or one of the, in Gaitan, where one of the guys was attacked and where people were killed. These institutions of persecuted, marginalized communities in Colombia, they're symbols of extortion, violence, persecution of youth, rape, oppression. The death of Javier Ordonez was the spark that lit the fuse, but Colombia has been building this bomb for decades. I thought that was a pretty succinct explanation of the way these communities viewed what was happening. Yeah, that is a, that is a great quote. Um, you, you've been on the ground amidst all the clashes. Maybe describe them. What kind of intensity were we, were we talking about? It really depended on the neighborhood. So I spent four days, about 12 hours a day, going to protests all over the city. In some of the more middle-class neighborhoods, it was just people. Okay, so to describe how the protests worked, they weren't organized marches. They weren't big rallies. It was just every night, you know, when the sun started to go down, people would all start to gather around their local precinct buildings. Some of these protests were small, 60, 70 people. Some of them were really big. 
it just depended on the neighborhood. And the interesting thing that I saw kind of as an observer is usually there was a strong correlation between the economic status of the neighborhood and uh, how little violence there was. So in middle-class neighborhoods, there's just a lot of people standing around the sky with signs yelling at police, calling them names, right? But in mm. the, the the more ignored communities, the protests were a lot more um, intense. It was people throwing rocks. I didn't personally see anybody throwing Molotov cocktails, but I saw videos of that stuff happening. Um, so yeah, there was kind of a, like a, a, reverse, a reverse correlation between wealth and the intensity of the protests. Um, but what was really interesting to me is that at three of these guys, the community actually took over the police station, like evicted police forces, um, either through burning the station out or just through kind of wearing police down because there was so much happening in the city. And in three of these neighborhoods turned these police stations into some version of like a cultural center. So one of them was a neighborhood uh, that created a bookstore in this burnt out police station. Repaint, they repainted the sides of the building with portraits of the people who had been killed at the protest there the second night. And they were giving out food and that lasted for about three or four days. And it was a really beautiful kind of like reappropriation of the community of these police stations. Another one I saw got turned into a dance hall. I, like a famous cumbia DJ was was spinning from inside the dance hall while there was a dance party on the streets, like all nice. blocks around the police station, right? Um, and the third one was where Ordonez was killed, which turned into sort of a shrine. Like the, the police station was completely repainted with murals, uh, mural of his face, although that was later destroyed by police. Um, messages of kind of peace being like, we're, we're tired of state violence. Uh, we need education, not guns, things like that. There was a shrine built to Ordonez, which I believe is still standing. I was there two days ago and the police still hadn't taken it down. So I thought that was kind of a uh, an interesting response. And it wasn't like the sort of like anarchist theory-based thing you saw in the States uh, in, 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 was that in Seattle? Um mm. It was it was more just like an organic reaction of the community. It wasn't overtly political. It wasn't uh, showmanship. It was just literally people from the neighborhood that, when I talked to a lot of these people, well, their response to me was, look, like we understand why the violence happened. We aren't the ones who perpetrated it. We don't think that that's productive for our community. So we were trying to find a way to join the demonstrations in sort of a pacific manner and still make a social statement. And I thought that was pretty beautiful. Something I don't I don't often see here in Latin America. Mm. Um, and I know you've explained what the kind of relationship is between the people and the police, but what about the relationship, or at least the kind of status of the police in Colombia? I understand it's not quite the same as like Western countries. They seem kind of militarized. Um, you know what kind of what kind of powers do they have? Sure. So unlike most modern democracies, the police operate under the Ministry of Defense, which also controls the army. Um, the national police are more common in, in, uh, in, uh, than municipal police, although municipal police do exist here. Um, and they've been a big... You have to understand that like, Colombia is only three years out of a war that officially lasted 50 years, but unofficially lasted 50 years before that. So there's just... The militarization is super normal here. Um, like you go to the airport, you see guys with machine guns, right? Like you go out into the country, you'll see army checkpoints. It's just sort of like normal here. It's it's, it's taken for granted. But yeah, there is a, a huge logistical difference and systemic difference in the way that the police force is even organized. I mean, they report directly to the Ministry of Defense, which is from an American's perspective, kind of dystopian. But that's just sort of how the country works. 
Right, and the government called in the military, didn't they? I see this video where he's on TV, I think, like, day two of the riots after they'd already killed, like, four or five people, um, the police that is killed people. Um, what Did you see any of that? Like, what kind of role did the military have in these clashes? Thankfully, I think that the, the government learned their lesson from the national strikes when they tried to impose a military curfew the second night. They didn't deploy the military as crowd control, which is extremely good because those guys always escalate the situation here. They're, they're, they're not trained for de-escalation. Um, so mostly the, what I, the role that I saw them playing was they were protecting government infrastructure. They were stationed like around embassies, uh, government buildings, Plaza de Bolivar, which is like the main sort of, I don't know, Bogota's Times Square, if you will. Um, they, were, they were, it might be better, better compared to like the Lincoln Memorial, actually, now that I think about it. It's, it's, it's the, where the Congress meets. It's a traditional public meeting spot. Um, so luckily, or perhaps smartly, one of the only things that the government did right was not having the military respond to rioters, which I think would have made the situation incredibly worse. So they just kind of stood there, like stationed? Yeah, mostly they set up barricades of government buildings is the short, simple answer, which is good. But, you know, it's there are some positives that have come out of this. The government apologized for the actions of the police, which never happens here. Even under the most extreme accusations of violence or even with investigations with considerable evidence, the government's response has always been to either ignore or deny. There's never been sort of any accountability. So just the very idea that the Ministry of Defense apologized is a huge thing. The mayor of Bogota is demanding reform. A few senators from the opposition have proposed a bill that will remove the police from under control of the Ministry of Defense and create a new ministry only for law enforcement, which is something that I very much hope passes. But just the idea that that's a legal dialogue that's happening right now, I think is a big step in the right direction. Um, and what about the people? Have they said like, you know, we're stopping the protests or, you know, you said they've kind of died down for a little bit. What's the reaction from the people who've been on the streets? Yeah, that's been interesting. So most of the people that I talked to that were part of the protests didn't have like a really strong uh, political ideology, right? The response wasn't based on, 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 on rules that I think a lot of a lot of people tried to impose on protest movements, like oh, is it leftist? Is it rightist? Oh, always. It, it yeah. yeah, yeah. It wasn't really like that. It was more of an issue-based protest, right? So that was that was kind of interesting. I mean, you saw some of the polarization that always happens. I think people here have pretty mixed feelings. Every time there's a protest, the the, the conservatives say that it's communists from Cuba and Venezuela, right? But the, the people that are saying this. Like, they don't live in these neighborhoods. They didn't go to these protests. They have no idea what the fuck they're talking about. Um, I, I would say that the response from the community was, like, mostly the youth who feel like they have no future in the country, who feel like they are denied these educations for opportunity. There's no in investments in their communities economically. And sort of have, have, a, have like a nihilistic view of what the state is. Um, kind of older people in the community, I think, from what I gathered, talking to people... They understand completely why the youth were so mad, but I think a lot of them also felt that the rage was a little bit misfocused. Um, so now things are kind of on pause. I think that these reforms by the government and and also the police stopped murdering people on day three, which was really, I think, what disarmed the situation the most. So it wasn't like a, a social movement that people were trying to keep going, um, something with a cause. It was more of this issue. And I think some of the people feel like the issue was at least starting to be addressed. But as we kind of got into, there's a lot of other things brewing here. And the national strikes last year promised to come back this year. 
So, I mean, this is all fuel for fire for future protests, especially as more of the economic impacts from COVID begin to show themselves in the Colombian economy. Right. Um, maybe explain about the national strikes because they made a big impact, right? Yeah. So they were the biggest last November. They were national strikes were organized by a plethora of groups, and they were mostly demanding that the government um, continue with the peace process. Which the the right now the president Duque, Ivan Duque, has been dismantling aspects of this police of this peace accord because his party is vehemently against FARC joining the government. And these protests also demanded education and police reform, which is kind of ironic, right? Um, and they were the biggest protests in 50 years in Bogota. The first day, uh, I, no, people argue over the number, but uh, there were multiple marches. And the one that I was at, there were over 100,000 people in it. And there were four others in the city while that was going on. So they're massive. Like, it was a huge turnout. And the, the government initially responded just extremely violently. They were chastised by the UN for human rights violations for some of the attacks the military and police had on protests, although not many as many people died during those, which is an interesting statistic as well. Um, mostly those protests were worn down through attrition. After the government stopped imposing sort of an iron fist response, the, pro the protests lasted a month, which is a really long time because they're driven by students and, and people from marginalized communities who don't have the luxury of not working for a month, right? But I think by the end of it, they were just sort of ground down by attrition. I think the most powerful tool any government has against uh, a protest or social movement is attrition, right? Like, eventually the people will stop coming out in the streets either through fatigue or because they're, they're economically unable or, or they just move on with their lives. And that was pretty much what happened with pr protests at the, at the beginning of December here, the national strikes. But the organizers said that they didn't achieve their goals and they were really frustrated with the government about that. And they promised they were going to reorganize strikes in 2020. That's been kind of on hold because of the coronavirus crises. But I can see something like that being organized here in the new year very easily. So do you think the protests have stopped for now then, the clashes? Yeah, I mean, I, there's still a couple of guys that are repurposed, right? That are still, they were burnt out that the police haven't reclaimed yet. But I'd say as far as like white being at all widespread, most of them have stopped. That's correct. Um. That's surprising to me, at least, like, considering what, how many people dead? 13, 14? 13 people killed, over almost 200 wounded. Right, in the space of, like, four days. I don't know, it just seems a surprise to me that people would just go, like, oh, okay, I'm kind of done now. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it, too, is that there's just been so many murders uh, from state forces here that it's not really, it's not really news, right? It, it was a big deal because... These murders were happening in the community. And yeah, I'm calling them murders. They were, right? Like, <laughs> they were intentional. Uh, like, they were personal. There were people these, these communities knew, right? But you open up the newspaper in Colombia, every day there's, there's, there's deaths at the hands of state forces or um, escalations with armed groups that lead to deaths. So it's like outside of the tourist cities where most people go in Colombia, like Medellin, Cali, Cartagena, or, or Bogota, the, the country never really stopped the civil war. This is a story that, in, in U.S. press at least, I don't know how it is in the U.K., Colombia is often portrayed as this, like, economic miracle, right? Like, this country at war that now is so safe. It's like, yeah, you can go on vacation to the nice vacation spots, and those are relatively safe for foreigners, for sure. It's much safer than 20 years ago when Medellin was the murder capital of the world. But 
what, what these stories don't often report is that war never stopped in places like Cauca or Putumayo or, or uh, Tibu that are, that are still controlled by armed groups or most of the Pacific coast. So you kind of have to understand that these people from these communities, it's like violence. Yeah, 13 deaths sounds really bad to, to, to Western ears, but this is just sort of the, the day-to-day life of, of Colombia and Colombians, especially for the impoverished. Right. Right, that is grim. Yeah, I get what you're saying. It's like not even a big deal that that many people have been killed. Um, you, you you mentioned the armed groups there. I mean, what kind of relation does that have to the um, to the clashes, if any? Uh, I wouldn't say there's really a direct relation, other than just in, in a lot of rural communities, there's there's no there's no Colombian state. The Colombian state hasn't invested in these communities, it's not interested in these communities unless they have like natural resources. Um, I mean, we started getting into some really complex issues here. There are like dozens of armed groups in Colombia and a lot of them aren't driven by ideology. They're driven by a lot of different things. Uh, the drug trade is a big part of that. The drug war is a big part of that. So how much how much did that influence directly these protests in Bogota? I'd say probably not much. There's not really armed group presence here in Bogota um, as opposed to you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But I think just like the background of general violence and people's sort of fatigue for horrific news has influenced these protests a lot and part of why they have sort of died down for the moment. Um, so without, I mean, I know it's hard to predict, but what do, you, what do you think the kind of future holds for Colombia at this stage? Because to me, from what I've been reading about the armed groups um, from previous um, episodes and from what's happening now, like, I don't know, it doesn't look good to me. No. Uh, so I've been doing a lot of reporting on, on the peace accord here, and most experts I talk to are extremely concerned. So kind of stepping away from these immediate protests and into more of the armed groups, uh, Colombia has announced a new Plan Colombia. Plan Colombia was the name of the joint military operation with the U.S. in the 90s here that some people credit with weakening FARC enough to end the Civil War, but other people here just view it as um, a massive attack of the government on civil society led to a lot of atrocities. So that's, the, the administration, uh, Duque's administration now has decided that a new plan Colombia is a good idea. Um, partially that's under pressure from the US. The US is mad that uh, cocaine production is skyrocketing again here, uh, despite fumigation efforts and despite this, this 50 year war on drugs now. Um, and a lot of, what that means is they're gonna be sending aggressive military forces and the US trained like search and destroy missions to go attack. Which and on paper you read this and it's like, okay, they're going to attack. They're going to attack coca farms. That sounds bad. Coca farmers are bad, right? But you have to understand, like the they're attacking communities that have lived in a region where there's been no government for 50 years. So a lot of these farmers, it's not like they have a choice. It's like they could try to grow yucca and oranges, and there's nowhere to sell them because there's no roads and no marketplaces, or they can grow coca leaves, sell them to the gorillas for almost nothing. Or not just the gorillas, I have to, I should specify. Like there's also uh, a lot of right-wing Paraco groups. That's the slang term for Colombian paramilitary here. Or just plain criminal enterprise groups. So the response of the military going attacking these farmers who really have no choice in what's going on seems to me like a really counterproductive move. And to a lot of experts here that are talking about the peace process as well. So I don't know. I think that it would be overstating the situation to say that like Colombia is going to go back into civil war. But I don't think it's overstating the situation at all to say if the government keeps heading down this path of not choosing peace, the only option to not having peace is an eventual war again, right? 
And you're talking mm-hmm. about arm groups that have, like the FARC splinter groups and ELN, these, these groups are not to be trifled with. They have 50 years experience of fighting an asymmetrical war against one of the most capable militaries in South America. Like these guys are not playing, right? And they're not easily defeated. And the cost of, of reinitiating that conflict is horrific. There are over 8 million victims of violence during the Civil War here. So the government for now, the current administration seems more interested in investing in the cities and raising the GDP than really addressing these root issues that are causing so much instability. And I don't want to sidetrack your entire podcast here, but you could have an entire conversation just about the war on drugs and and how U.S. policy in that respect is utterly destabilizing Colombia. That's indisputable. Yeah, no, we did um, a podcast with... um toby muse you know the guy that wrote kilo and it was it just yeah man it just just fucking blew my mind that what a mess that is is being created uh, up in the jungles there um wh- one more thing i want to ask like wh- why do you think it's, it's a kind of a it's a i don't know i hate this question but why do you think that the clashes in colombia were i, wanna, I don't want to say ignored by the media but they they didn't seem to be a big deal whereas i mean when i saw it i was like fuck like 13 people killed, like, you know, first night of clashes, I saw the footage, you know, police shooting at random, like, people fucking brain spilled out on the road, um, you know, these these kind of small police stations attacked and burned. To me, it seemed like, wow, this is a big deal. But I don't know, on the world stage, it just kind of seemed like, eh, like, I don't know, do you think that's anything, is that Colombia or is it just a sign of the times? I mean, my my view here is from within the Colombian bubble. And so in my world, it was a huge story, right? So mm-hmm. I, I I got emails from every, well, not every, but most editors I work with that night when things kicked off, we need, can you get back to Bogota? I was working on a story on the Venezuelan frontier about armed groups. They're like, can you get back to Bogota first thing tomorrow morning? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'm on my way. I'll get the first flight that I can. So, I mean, here, it was a big deal. Um, I saw, like, U.S. media outlets covering what was happening. Um I think part of it is just the world is on fire right now, right? Like it's, it's a mess everywhere. I mean, I see less coverage about mm. the U.S. protests, but they're still continuing, right? Um, yeah, it's just it's just a fatigue with with 2020. There's just every day. There's just some amazingly bad news. How can we keep all of it on our radar screen, right? Yeah, that is true. I guess it's um it's hard to keep up, really. And there's only I mean I'm kind of uh, contradicting myself now, but it, it is true. There's only so much people can care about i do think people forget that like people have got lives they've got fucking jobs where they're working you know 50 60 hours a week yeah it's true that you know you can't just care about everything at the same time there is that yeah no that is true um all right mate uh, is there anything else you want to say about uh, columbia before we wrap this up I, I i guess like there's one final thought so my big takeaway from the national strikes last year there was a lot of people i was on the ground for almost a month every day at all at, at various protests and a lot of the response from English language media was like, wow, these protests were historic and they're huge, but they didn't achieve anything. And they're kind of portrayed as sort of like a failure story. But to me, those protests represented something much bigger. And that was that Colombia has always been a very flawed democracy, flawed in the sense of both an oligarchy controlling everything and also being incredibly corrupt. And it was the first time civil society had taken to the streets in big numbers since the peace agreement. So the way that I took it was it was an incredible success. It was the citizenry sort of flexing their power that the citizenry should have in any any developed democracy. And I think it scared the crap out of the government. 
And I think that was part of why the initial response to these uprisings were so fierce in the beginning. I think that the government is really scared of people reclaiming this power. And to me, that's a, that, that gives me a little bit of hope in, in Colombia, that things can change. And I think that that's my final observation. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Make governments afraid again. That's definitely a line I can wear on a hat. Um, yeah, man. Okay, thank you very much, mate. Um, where, where can people uh, follow your work and uh, get a hold of you? Uh, easiest to just find my work on the website. You can get a hold of me through Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, all the social media there. That's Muros Invisibles, Spanish for Invisible Walls. M-U-R-O-S-I-N-V-I-S-I-B-L-E-S.com. Amazing. Thank you very much, mate. Really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. It was nice talking to you again. Yeah, man. That was Joshua Collins telling us about the clashes in Colombia and the fragile situation in the country right now. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us. Uh, the best way to do that will be on the Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash popularfront. You can donate $5, $10, $30. You will get uh, bonus episodes at least to a month. You will get access to narrated articles, access to the kind of um, educational series the too cool for j school series the video series um you will get access to the community discord you can get your name on episodes all sorts ask anyone that's a patreon you get a lot for the money um thank you to our sponsors the 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 this this episode was sponsored by oracle coffee shop in portland oregon usa they're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products see them at 3875 southwest bond avenue 97239 i don't know what the fuck that all that address is it's some american stuff but if you know it go and see it tell them popular front sent you uh, we're also sponsored by grind core house a pair of independent coffee shops in philadelphia usa one in south and one in west check them out on social media at grind core house go to the shop uh, tell them popular front sent you this episode is also sponsored by propagandopolis an outlet selling and informing people about historical conflict propaganda get prints at propagandopolis.com someone messaged me the other day saying what the fuck is that website propaganda police no sorry if i'm not saying it clearly it's propagandopolis p-r-o-p-a-g-a-d-o-p-o-l-i-s.com enter the code popular front 10 to get 10 percent off um the episode is also sponsored by black triangle an independent company selling self-defense tools check them out at blktriangle.com everything yeah uh, if you want to be a sponsor and you're independent um, not a psychopath not a scumbag not a big corporate and not treating your workers badly and your company has kind of a relevance I guess to popular front um, like we're not gonna start selling fucking pillows and mattresses um, but yeah if, if you're interested in that hit us up we've got very competitive rates uh, email me jake at hanrahan.tv that is my surname h-a-n-r-a-h-a-n follow popular front on social media um subscribe to us on youtube youtube.com slash popular front see our website at popularfront.co follow us on instagram instagram.com slash popular dot front follow us on twitter 
twitter.com slash popularfrontco. That's all the social medias. My social medias, just look for at Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N if you want. Um, what else? Yeah, I don't know. That's about it. <laughs> um, yeah, that's all the social medias as far as I'm aware. Oh yeah, um, if you want to wear our merchandise, um, go to popularfront.shop. You can see all that there. Or you can see that from the website, popularfront.co whatever um thank you very much to our high tier patreons they are alexander nicholas butter ron swanson jd jav bastian gamillo ritmeyer ian froese james cully michael akakan a ethan reyes ethan reyes yeah ethan reyes ethan ethan reyes fitz madrid joe watt alex northrop ed Coulthard, johnny laflair <coughs> clayton taylor Hugo Newski, Mike Barone, Scott Hopton, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano, Degenerate Zero Alpha, uh, I think Giorgio Arani, if I've said that wrong mate, please do let me know, DR, Trey Nance, Charlie, Olin Thorne, Amy Rupert, Mink, or Minke, I'm not sure, let me know if I've said it wrong, uh, Frank Austin, Amelia Me, Christina Rivetti, Freya Northman, Ali Hunter, Moody Al Rashid, Maxwell Burke, Bill Wilson, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom, uh, Tom Lochrin, Ari from the Discord, Young Wasabi, Sarushe Hawazi, Tony Bin, Adam Berg Snyder, Scartoon Music, Sebastian from the Discord, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kabarak, Patrick Bronte, Dan Dunham, Fletcher Tate, Chad Walker, Diana Govanek, Q-Ball, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Emily Molly, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, Kay Hardy Roberts, and Joanne Stocker. Thank you all very much for keeping this going. Really appreciate that. If you want to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash popular front supporters there. Or if you don't like Patreon, go to uh, popularfront.co slash support. Thank you all much. Thank you all much. Thank you all so much for supporting us. Like I said, this is all grassroots. We do not accept money from corporates. Fuck them. We're doing this on our own. Thanks very much for keeping us afloat. The more money we get on the Patreon, the more money we get on uh, supporters and donations and uh, fucking hell, my brain is zonked. Um, uh, the advertisers, the independent advertisers, the more goes into Popular Front. I'm sure you can tell the sound quality's got better. We've got new mic. Docs are getting way better um, and more frequent. Yeah, patreon.com slash popular front. Uh, music in this episode, the intro was by Home and the outro was by Sam Black, aka Son of Old. See his music at samblackpf.com. Mm-hmm.